Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Some big and controversial legislation has already become law this session. Governor DeSantis has signed bills that tackle affordable housing, concealed carry and education, among other measures. We're in the final week of session, which is often when a flurry of bills are sent to the governor's desk. And today on Florida Matters, we're taking a closer look at what's left. Later, we'll talk with Cecile Schoon from the League of Women Voters and Amy Keith of Common Cause about the potential impact of an elections bill on voters. First, though, we're joined by Mitch Perry, senior reporter for the Florida Phoenix, for a conversation about legislation still in play as the final week of session kicked off. We spoke Tuesday morning via Zoom about bills that will have an impact on tenants' rights, immigration and constitutional amendments, and a big change to how juries can make recommendations in death penalty cases. Thanks so much for joining us, Mitch. Appreciate it. Great to be here. One of Governor DeSantis' priorities has been immigration and a bill that targets undocumented immigration has passed in the Senate last week. What does it do and, and what's missing? There's a lot of things in it. Uh, I would say in terms of the business community, the big one is that uh, for all businesses with 25 or more employees, they would have to use E-Verify. That's the internet system through the Department of Homeland Security to check the legal status of their workers. This has been something the legislature has flirted with in the past of doing something like this but they've never gone all the way with it because they've had opposition from business interests. And so if this bill in fact goes through and goes to the governor, that's gonna be really an important aspect of this bill, but there's a lot of other provisions in there and some have been changed. So for example, though, there is a, they call human smuggling laws in here. If you transport uh, knowingly or willingly an undocumented immigrant into the state of Florida or out of the state of Florida, those can be subjected to third degree and even second degree felonies. They changed this, though. At one point, it was if you were transporting an undocumented immigrant any part of Florida inside the state, and there was a real big pushback from religious groups on that, and so that's been taken out of the bill. The big thing that's not in here that we've been tracking all session long, and again, just with a few days left to go, it doesn't look like it's going to make it. Again, you never know until the last day. Something that the governor announced as part of this whole package back in February, which would be to repeal the 2014 law to provide in-state tuition for undocumented uh, students or dreamers. And this was immediately responded with uh, negativity by none other than former Governor Rick Scott, now of course a U.S. Senator. Rick Scott signed that law back into existence in 2014. And Jeanette Nunez, who is now the Lieutenant Governor for Ron DeSantis' administration, she was a real big person in the Florida House to push that through. So it's really interesting why they would want to get rid of that. And now maybe they're not going to do that. Maybe there's been enough pushback against that. Let's talk about housing, because this is a key concern for Floridians. An omnibus housing bill passed and was signed by the governor during session. That does address affordable housing. But there's also an effort underway to do away with local tenants' bills of rights and kick them back to the state. Tell us more about what that means. So as you mentioned, in the Live Local Act, uh, a bill of $711 million package to deal with the affordable housing crisis here in Florida, that was one of the first early bills that actually got through. I think it was the first full week of session. It had been worked on in committee weeks leading up to the session. That was a, the big thing that Democrats did not like about that bill and some housing advocates 
was that it got rid of a rent control, which is already pretty hard to do here in the state of Florida. You know, we followed this, Matthew, with both Tampa and St. Petersburg, their local city councils discussed doing something like that in the last year or so, opted not to do it because they thought they were going to get sued on it. You can do it, or you could do it, I guess still t- technically today. The only county that tried to do it was Orange County. They passed a referendum that's in litigation now. But right, this new bill that's that's moving through, that's going to pass, essentially will take away those tenant bill of rights. The, the argument basically is that, that we hear from the bill sponsors is simply that it's not a good thing to have tenants have those rights. The landlord should have more control there. I'm surprised... I guess in a way they're doing it because, again, with, with the fact that we're not going to have rent control here at all, basically don't have that right now. But that's one of the things that, that city councils have done, like Miami, like uh, Tampa City, I think Hillsborough, Pinellas have all done that. And they're just, they're modest, but they make sure that, they, that tenants have certain rights that they can't be taken advantage of. I think some of them have, like if you're a Section 8, you get a voucher, right, that, that, that a landlord has to accept that. You can't discriminate against that. That would go away with this bill. Hmm. The laws around concealed carrier weapons in Florida have been relaxed this session, but there are still more efforts to ease restrictions on the kinds of weapons people under 21 can buy. Tell us a bit about what's going on there. Yeah, interesting. So, of course, in 2018, after the tragedy of Parkland, uh, the Florida legislature, which was in session at the time, uh, passed a package of very substantive gun control, gun safety laws. But one of the provisions in that law that was immediately challenged by the NRA was raise the age from 18 to 21 to buy a long gun, to buy a shotgun, to buy a rifle. Well, in the current legislative session in the House, uh, a bill has been passed in the House that would bring that back down to 18 years of age. It's pretty controversial, and there was a really emotional debate, especially with some of the legislators who were uh, elected officials in Parkland at the time, back in 2018, who said, this is wrong, we shouldn't be doing this. Now, the caveat of that is right now, as we speak, is that there is no companion bill in the Senate. So it doesn't look like it's going to get across the finish line. But you never know, because that bill could be amended to uh, the Senate, could be amended to another piece of legislation. I don't think it will be. Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo has been asked about this a couple of times or more than a couple of times throughout the session. She does not support that. And no, again, no senator has sponsored that bill as of yet. Now, Florida now has no requirement for a unanimous decision from a jury to recommend the death penalty. What are some of the implications of this new law? This all comes from what happened last fall in Broward County. With the Parkland case. Yeah, that was a, uh, nine jurors voted for the death penalty. Three were against it. And, you know, you need a unanimous jury, right? So therefore, Nicholas Cruz is actually going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And there was a big clamor, a big, a lot of anger. And that is in Fort Lauderdale, which is actually a Democratic, you know, area. And that's why you saw in the legislature, folks like Senate Minority Leader Warren Book and others from the South Florida area support that bill. So it had bipartisan support. So that is going to be something pretty significant because we're going to have the lowest threshold now in the country. The only other state right now that does not require unanimous jury decision for death penalty is Alabama. A couple other states, the judge can overrule the jury on this. Of course, Florida, up until a few years ago, you only needed seven jurors to decide the death for an individual. And then the Supreme Court, both in Florida and the United States Supreme Court, got involved with that, changed that. So we changed the law, I believe it was in 2017, 2018, to make it unanimous. 
This would take it back. And really, it's a direct reaction to the Nicholas Cruz decision from last fall. House Joint Resolution 129 would raise the bar for citizen-led constitutional amendments from 60% to 66.67% of the vote to pass. If the resolution gets, I believe, three-fifths of the vote in each chamber, it will go on the ballot. A little bit of a irony there. Tell us a little more about this, if you could. Right, and you only need 60% to pass it. You know, as we speak right now, we, we're not sure about that. I think this bill is definitely going to be voted on in the next couple of days. We'll see. I think what you're seeing right now, again, with just three days up to go, all the big heavy stuff is, is all coming through right now. And that's a bill that actually Rick Roth, he is a Republican. He has sponsored that bill several times. I'm talking maybe three, four or five times in recent years. This, the legislature has already done a lot already to make it much more difficult to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Let's face it, you need millions of dollars to do that. That may happen in the case of recreational marijuana in 2024 because there's some big companies that are behind that. So even if it, if it gets the three-fifths in the legislature, it would go on the ballot in 2024. So it would not affect any ballot measures in 2024. But probably the next one would be 2026. Um, 67% is a really high margin, right? So, you know, critics, again, say it's really taking away some of the, the direct impact that people can have. We've had measures such as raising the minimum wage, such as medical marijuana, that only we have in Florida because of constitutional amendments, because the legislature had no interest in passing those laws. And just finally, Mitch, state employees in line for a 5% pay raise. I guess some good news there for the uh, folks who work for the state of Florida. What's going on with that one? Yeah, that's that's important, right? Because for many, many years, they didn't get a pay raise. And so I think when the state is, is pretty flush with, with cash, the budget has officially been presented today, so it looks like we'll get out of the session here on time on Friday. Of course, Governor DeSantis, I'm sure, will do some vetoes, but I think I'm hearing $116 billion, right? That's more than last year. The state is doing really well, economically speaking. So, you know, the thing I'm looking out on, because I cover a lot of criminal justice issues, is, again, for correction officers in the state. And the state has actually done a lot in the last year and a half in terms of raising the pay of corrections officers. They've had to do it because they've just heard these horror stories about what's going on in some of these prisons here. And the hope is that you can attract good people and people who will stick around and not quit to go work at a local sheriff's office because they can make more money. So I think there's been some interesting uh, battles back from the Senate and House on that particular level. But overall, yeah, I think I think uh, state workers, it's a good thing for them on, in this budget that's going to be uh, signed. The legislature is going to pass later this week. So a whirlwind few days left yet. Uh, Mitch Perry, senior reporter for the Florida Phoenix, where he covers politics and government. Thank you so much for your reporting and for your time. All right. Thanks very much. You're listening to Florida Matters. Still to come, how changes to Florida election laws could affect voters. That's when we return. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Legislation that would place further restrictions on voter registration groups passed both chambers last week. Among other things, Senate Bill 7050 would give those groups less time to return voter registration forms and impose higher late fees and fines. Here's Senator Danny Burgess discussing those changes during a Senate committee hearing on ethics and elections last month. He said going from a 14-day to a 10-day turnaround time to return voter registration forms is a good move. Because of the significance of what a third-party voter registration organization is holding when they take your application and the information that's retained on it, um, I, I submit and I believe that 10 days is, is not only reasonable, but uh, critically important to make sure that it gets into the right hands that, and it's secure. 
During the same committee hearing, David Ramber, a lobbyist for state election supervisors, also spoke in favour of the bill and the tougher restrictions. Probably the, the biggest reason for the 10-day turnaround and increasing the fines. They need to be serious that if an 18-year-old kid registers to vote because his birthday's in September and it's before the November book closing and they don't turn it in on time, then he's lost his right to vote in that November elections. But voter rights groups say the bill will make it harder to vote. We spoke to Cecile Schoon and Amy Keith via Zoom. Cecile Schoon is the president of the League of Women Voters of Florida. Cecile, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And Amy Keith, Program Director for Common Cause Florida. Amy, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Cecile, I want to start with you. Supporters of this bill say it makes voter information more secure. What are third-party groups like the League of Women Voters doing to make sure that information gets submitted in good time and is secure? Well, procedures that we use have guaranteed that it would be secure regardless of any of these bills that have been passed in the last five or six years, making things more difficult and increasing fines. We have a system that we developed maybe 15 years ago where we actually have courses and teach every volunteer who wants to do voter registration the ins and outs, what's happening, and uh, they have to take a quiz. And the questions are maybe 15 questions, and they have to get 100%. And we rotate the questions, and we're there to explain. So it's, it's not like a gotcha, but we just want to be sure they understand. And that's one system that we have is training. The second thing we do is we, you have to get permission from uh, the local authorities in your league. We have 29 leagues. So that would either be the local president of the local league or the voter services chair. And those two work out who can give authority. Why do we do that? So that we don't have members registering people and then something emergency happens in their family and off they go and they've got someone's application. They can only do it with the guidance and approval of their leadership. And then the leadership knows and follows up. Let me have those applications. I'll turn them in tomorrow. And we usually turn them in within two to four days. So those are things we've been doing for a very long time, and we've had almost no issues. Um, one issue when we did research was a hurricane, and uh, we were excused by law because SOE's office was closed because of the hurricane. And uh, we had one instance, I think, of three of, or just a handful of applications that were turned in one day one day past the point, and everybody was able to vote. It didn't prevent any voting. So we we believe we're doing thousands of voter registration applications every year. That's a pretty good record when we looked over the span of 10 years. Just to remind us where this bill is at, it was in both houses last week. What's happened since then? Well, the Senate pretty much adopted the House bill, which had some provisions which are worse. And uh, it passed. There was, I tried to count the amendments, I think at least 20 amendments that I know a lot of our voting allies, such as Common Cause and others, and we submitted very specific suggested amendments that would be beneficial to the citizens and third-party voter registrant organizations, and nary a one passed. So it's, it's passed both houses, and we're waiting to see what the governor does. 
One big difference in this legislation, it would reduce the timeline for sending voter registration information to supervisors of elections. It would reduce that timeline from 14 days to 10 days. What are the implications of that? That's nuts. You know, so they're raising fines. They've raised the maximum annual fine for any organization. Used to be $1,000 for many, many years. Then they raised it to 50000 then they raised it in one of the bill versions to 100000 And what passed was a quarter of a million. That's just an outrage and is telling a lot of organizations, the League and many other smaller organizations, maybe you shouldn't be registering voters. So that is something that we feel is totally unnecessary and very, very damaging. Now, you add that with another change they made recently in some other voter suppression laws where they said, oh, third-party voter registrant organizations, you need to turn in the application where the person resides. And Florida is a very mobile state where people travel three or four counties around for services, events, and things. So when we're doing registration at the library or a store, in Bay County, where I live, we're often dealing with six different counties because Bay County is the seat of all the smaller counties and people come there for medical services, stores, all kinds of things that they don't have in their smaller towns. So that means that we are obligated to either drive it to one of the other counties, which are from an hour, hour and a half away, or try to mail it in time. So those two things are crashing on third-party voter registration organizations at the same time. You can't just take it to your local, which my local supervisor of elections is literally five minutes from my office. And I would just take it there, but now we have to find another county. Cecile, you mentioned fines too. Now there's a pretty big hike in fines up from $50,000, I believe, for violating the rules, up to $250,000. What impact would the hike in fines have? Well, it's something we're going to have a board meeting to discuss how we plan to address that. But uh, we are certainly concerned for ourselves. And many of our members are concerned about registering voters because they don't want to subject, even inadvertently, the league to any penalties like that. We don't have those kind of resources. But we're super concerned with the smaller third-party registrant organizations that we feel very sure don't have that insurance or those resources, and we feel they may be pushed out of the game. Now, you call this voter suppression, but supporters of the bill, sponsors of the bill, say it's absolutely not voter suppression, that they're not interested in that, they're just trying to make things more secure. What do you say to that argument? That's ridiculous. When we questioned them, and they were questioned by other senators and representatives, they didn't even know. This bill dropped with less than 24 hours for us to review it the first time. 98 pages. They didn't even know what was in the bill. They're just being told what to do. That's a script that someone said, say this. Because when we said that you've gone from 14 days to 10 days, they're like, oh, no, it's 10 days. No, it had been changed by law. By Senate Bill 90 or Senate Bill 524, from 10 days to 14 days. And the legislators who are proposing this 
didn't know that. They are not informed. They do not know what they're saying. They are reading a script. We pointed out another direct conflict. There's a portion of the bill that says you have to give a receipt, right? Well, if you get take a, a voter registration application, give a receipt. Now, the problem with that is it leaves us open to bad actors. Oh, let me make a receipt. Oh, they gave me this receipt and it's not turned in. Then we're triggering fines or triggering lawyers arguing for us. It's, it's a mess and it's, it's a train wreck. But the, the argument in favor of that is we need a paper trail, right? Like the argument is let's, this is one extra step that makes things more secure. No, if they have problems with third-party registrant organizations, they should train them, find those people, and deal with them. What they are doing, it's be like, we have speeders that go 100 miles an hour and it says 75. Do you turn around and raise the fine on everyone? Or do you try to find the ones who are breaking the law and punish them? They know that most third-party registrant organizations have a fabulous record. And what they're doing is they're bringing a sledgehammer to a very modest problem where they know the people that are having these issues. Let them address those people. Well, here's the conflict that I was trying to get to, though. So they tell you that you can keep personal information on the people you register to vote so long as it is so that you can comply with the, uh, the law, right, 7050. There's another portion of 7050 that states outright any possession of personal information of the voter is a third degree felony. Now, how do the two of those things work together? On one side, they're saying, keep a record so long as you're doing it for this reason, but they haven't addressed that it's a direct and has been a long standing direct violation. I think it's Florida Statute 817. Uh, 615 or something like that, but it's actually in 7055, they, they reference that. Now, th that's the haste. That should not be happening where you have two parts of a bill when they're giving you kind of weird permission to keep records so that you can protect yourself. And the other one where they say any possession is a third degree felony. It's like entrapment. Amy, Keith, I want to bring you into this conversation. Your organization is more focused on voter education, right? So what does this bill mean for you? So this bill um, will absolutely have a chilling effect on voter education and voter outreach. So for us, we will really be scaling up um, voter education in response to the bill. Just as voter registration organizations are going to have to find ways to continue supporting voters, all of us who work in this space are going to have to find for the third year in a row ways to educate um, voters about these changes. So we've been already undertaking major efforts to educate voters about the changes in 2021 and 2022. And this year, we're leading a huge effort to let people know that they have to submit a whole new vote by mail ballot request because of the law that was passed back in 2021. So this is yet another round of changes with no investment from the legislator in voter education or outreach um, by elections offices. So every year, um, we have to educate voters on the new rules for voting, and it's just a cut, cut, cut of voter suppression through confusion. Um, so this isn't only a reorientation of education and a scale up to voters to let them know about the new rules 
again about things like like vote by mail this year, but also with the attack on voter registration groups, we know that there's going to be less presence in the community and organizations, all of our organizations are going to have to, including Common Cause Florida, look for new ways to support voters um, on how they can register on their own and help their friends and family register. It's, it's just going to really need a bit of a reinvention of voter education in Florida, as well as a scale up in order to address, again, the third year in a row of changes to the voting rules, as well as helping to fill these gaps left by a, a total lack of investment in outreach and education by the legislator to help supervisors of elections scale up, as well as this attack on third party voter registration organizations who do provide a lot of this education service in the community as well. Now, I heard the phrase voter suppression by confusion in there. Do you feel like you understand this bill well enough to be able to educate voters on it? We are definitely still analyzing this bill. As Cecile mentioned, we did not get very good answers to questions about how certain pieces of this very confusing piece of legislation are going to um, work together. There there weren't clear answers on some elements. Um, So yeah, so we will be digging in. Um, with election experts and legal support to really look at what this bill means on the ground for voters. But I mean, at this point, we didn't get very good answers from the bill sponsors. Amy, there have been a handful of arrests over the last 12 months or so under relatively new election laws, including uh, the push to develop this new um, election policing unit. And that was for people voting illegally. Many of these people believe they had the right to vote. This bill puts the onus on voters to figure out if they're eligible. I wonder what you think about the impact of that. What's that going to be? Yet another round of voter confusion, to be honest. I mean, when you say that you've got, I mean, it's really sending a mixed signal to voters because they get their official uh, voter information card from the supervisor of elections. And that card under statute constitutes approval of their registration. Now that card's going to have a statement on it that says that it does not mean that the voter is eligible to vote. I mean, that's a really confusing situation to play, place a voter in. And, and honestly, even the answers that uh, the bill sponsors were giving to the question about what's really the difference between approval of registration and your eligibility. So it really is a passing of the buck by the state on their responsibility to determine voter eligibility um, and try to place it on voters who to navigate our extremely complicated election laws you know, and we know that in the cases of returning citizens, there aren't even real systems in place for them to determine their fines and fees. Um, you have to have a lawyer to help you really suss out what your status is. So it's confusion for voters and it's really an abdication of the state's responsibility. And just for our listeners, when you say returning citizens, you're referring to people who've served a sentence for a felony and have, have completed that sentence. Yes. So people with prior felony convictions who are returning um, as citizens and full citizens in our in our community, which we voted for in 2018 to reenfranchise people when they have served their when they've you know served their time. Now I've heard in some of the discussion of this bill leading up to it being passed by the House and Senate there is the possibility for people to check with the Department of State if they are eligible to vote. Do you have an idea of how that's supposed to happen? That process, um, you could even hear in the debate on the floor that they couldn't give good information to people about how that process would work. We know that it's a time-consuming process, most concerningly, and there's an extraordinary amount of paperwork that the individual has to hunt down and provide in order for that process to move forward. So we do have real concerns about the efficiency of that process to really um, provide voters with the information they need in a timely way to make sure they can exercise their right to vote. 
Well, I want to thank you both very much for joining me and explaining some of the ramifications of this bill. Amy Keith, Program Director for Common Cause Florida. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be with you today. And Cecile Schoon, President of the League of Women Voters of Florida. Cecile, thank you so much. It's a great opportunity to try to explain to yourself and your listeners. Thank you. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.